Take your Bibles. We're going to turn open to the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. To grab a Bible, it's, uh, there's Bibles in the pew racks. If you don't have one with you, flip to the back half of the Bible. The beginning books there in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians. And this morning, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is what we do, we're family, and we gather together as family after hard weeks. Um, I wanted to be back with you, my family wanted to be back with you, and it's good to be with you. And there's great comfort as we're together, and that's what I want to look at this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And let's pray before we open God's Word together this morning. Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God who ministers to your people, not just in a moment, but every second of every minute of every hour of every day of our lives, that you are a God who is present with us. And we pray that even as we gather in this place or in the fellowship hall or those that have gathered with us online, Pray, Father, that we would know your presence this morning. We would find that your everlasting arms are wrapped around us, that you are a strong tower and refuge for us this morning, that there is shade underneath your outstretched wing this morning, and that even as we shall see that you are flooding our souls with mercy this morning. We might know that we have been in your presence, that we have been with you, and that you are the living God who loves your people. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, this is the holy and errant word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This has been a very difficult week for us as a church family. I think most of you know, if not all of you know, at the beginning of the week, there's a young boy in our community that uh, was involved in a farming accident, and uh, his life was taken, and he went home to glory, and his life was connected with a lot of lives. A lot of families in our congregation, uh, and many lives attached to that accident in our congregation. And you know that at the end of this week, um, we lost one of our own covenant children, uh, little Joshua, who so many of us have prayed for and, uh, and wept for and pleaded for his life with God for. And so this has just not been an easy week. So I wanted to be with you. I wanted to be with my family. Uh, This is what family does when you're going through hard times, through discouragement and pains and affliction, you gather together. This is what we do. And this is a wonderful passage that David, or that Paul gives us here that offers so much hope and so much help. Uh, I can only touch on it this morning. There's an awful lot more here. I would hope that as the day goes on today that you would turn back to this passage and you would ferret out all kinds of things that I didn't have time to address this morning. But I want to look at this together as much as we can. Paul is leading us into a passage where he is going to detail his own afflictions and his own trials and his own struggles. He knows affliction from personal experience. He has endured it a great deal since he has come to know Christ. It is, it is false and it is a lie when people say, when you come to know Christ, all of your troubles are over. No, as you come to know Christ, it is often that our troubles and trials are multiplied, even as Paul points out here, so that we might even more set our hope on God. And Paul experienced that these afflictions, these sufferings. He will speak about afflictions and sufferings in every verse, from verse 4 through verse 10. And in verse 8, he specifically speaks about this affliction that he has suffered in Asia. Some think that Paul is referencing some disease that he suffered while he was in Asia. That's a possibility. There are others, and I think this is much more likely, that what Paul is referencing is he's referencing what we see there in Acts 19, where the city of Ephesus erupts, you'll remember, at his preaching and the preaching of the apostles, and there is a kind of mob 
riot. It could be that. But most likely, I think, is that what Paul is referencing is all of the different afflictions and all of the different trials and all of the different struggles that he endured while he was doing ministry in Asia. He is a man that knows affliction. He has known affliction throughout his entire Christian life and his entire Christian ministry. He lives with affliction. In fact, he will detail it and later in this letter, in chapter 11, he says this. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He was a man of affliction. He suffered all of these afflictions without. But what he says at the very end of all of that long list is the great affliction. The affliction that has weighed on him more than anything else is that affliction of having anxiety for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That he is concerned for them, those churches, those people. And that's what most, if not all of you in this room, have experienced this week. You have experienced that. And many of you more than that. So this passage has a lot to say to us. You know, whatever Paul is specifically referencing in our passage this morning as his afflictions, he says this about them. In verse 8, he says that he was utterly burdened by them. That's the idea of, a, of being pressed down upon, of a weight that is so heavy, it's the picture of an animal, that a beast of burden, that a, a weight is on that animal and is such a heavy weight that that animal is being forced to carry that that animal sinks to its knees. It is just pressing it down. And Paul says these afflictions that we have experienced, they have so utterly burned, he says, they are beyond our strength in verse 8. We have despaired, he says, even of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. That's from the Apostle Paul. This is so heavy. Such a burden. It just feels like a living death. So what do we do in such affliction? I want us to see three things from this passage this morning. Three things. We rely upon God's comfort. We lean into one another's care. And we rest in prayer. We rely upon God's comfort. We lean into one another's care and we rest in prayer. First, we rely upon God's comfort. 
This is how Paul begins this entire letter, and he begins our section in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's how he describes God. God of all mercies, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. When he is afflicted in this way where he feels so pressed down and he feels so burdened that he is despairing of life itself, when he thinks about the God of providence that has ordained this for his life, where his mind runs is he's a God of mercies and a God of comfort. Father is a comforter, he says, a a paraclete, don't normally give you the Greek words, but I give it here because many of you know that word, paraclete. It's a word that's often used to speak of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. He is the paraclete. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, a, a paraclete, to be with you forever. The Son is also called a paraclete in Scripture. In 1 John 2.1, John writes to those who are in Christ and who have sinned. He says to them, he says, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our triune God is a paraclete, is a helper, a comforter. This is true of our God. He is the God of all comfort. But what's so fascinating to me in this passage is that Paul describes the Father. He's not speaking of the Son. He's not speaking of the Spirit. He's speaking of the person of the Father. And he says that the Father is a God of comfort. He is the Father of all mercies. The God of all comfort. The Father. I'm afraid that too often when you and I hear Father, we, we connote because of bad experiences growing up that the idea of a Father, that God as Father means that He is harsh and that He is hard. And we go through a week like this and there are very hard providences and there's very hard circumstances and we think this must come from a hard God. But you know, it's meant to convey just the opposite to you in Scripture. That He is your Father. That is that He is one who loves you. You'll notice that what Paul says here is that He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he calls Him the Father of all mercies. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, this is how the Father relates to you, through the Lord Jesus. And this Lord Jesus is your Christ. The one who lived and died and was buried and resurrected for sinners. This Christ is your Christ. And so when the Father looks at you, He looks at you through the lens of Christ, His Son. And that means that when He looks upon you, He looks upon you always with the eye of love. He's the Father of mercies. A week like this doesn't erase that. 
Paul has been through trial after trial, even despairing of life itself, and he finds himself relying upon his Father, who is a Father of mercies and a God of all comfort. That idea of comfort here, it, it has the idea of, of sympathy. It has the idea of a kind of soothing, but it's, it's much more than that. It's not just that He extends comfort to soothe you. It's not just that He extends comfort and sympathy. Rather, the idea in the Greek also has the idea of strengthening. He gives you comfort to strengthen you. He strengthens you. That's the God of all comfort. Notice the language here. I want you to see it. It is so very important in a week like this. He is the Father of mercies, it is plural, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction. This is complete. This is encompassing. This is universal. There is no bottom to the mercy of our God. No bottom. If there is any mercy anywhere, it comes from Him. He is the Father of all mercies. It stems from Him. It flows from Him. And this mercy of His is a mercy that reaches into every situation, every trial, every tribulation, every sorrow, every struggle, every affliction. He is not just the God of a mercy, Paul says, but the God of all mercies. Paul says he is not the God of a comfort, but he is the God of all comfort. He's not the God who comforts us in some our afflictions, but all our afflictions, he says. Here is where we start, and this is where we dwell, and this is where we end, that we have a God, our God, not some distant foreign deity that sits up in heaven and is distant from us, but our God is a God of all comfort to us. All comfort. But isn't this the same God that ordained all of this? Yes. Yes. You know, throughout the Scriptures, you and I are promised throughout the Scriptures. I love the Scriptures because they are honest. They're very clear about what you and I are to expect in life. And over and over throughout the Scriptures, we are told to expect trials and we are to expect sufferings and we are to expect afflictions. Jesus Himself will say this. He will say, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. It's a promise. But we're also promised Comfort. We're not just promised afflictions, we're promised comfort. And that's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand. That's what he wants you and I to understand this morning. Notice how many times he mentions comfort in these verses. It's mentioned more than affliction. He uses the term ten times in verses three through seven. In four verses, he mentions the comfort that God gives ten times. I almost think he was trying to drill home a point to us. I think verse 7 gets at the heart of it more than any other. He 
says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You promised both. Charles Hodge wonderfully said, those whom God afflicts or who suffer for Christ's sake and with Christ's people, God never fails to console. John Newton said it this way, he said, The Lord is so rich and so good that He can by a glance of thought compensate His children for whatever His wisdom sees fit to deprive them of. Where there is affliction for the people of God, there is also compassion for the people of God. He never looks at us, dear Christian, never looks at us, but with the eye of mercy. There's affliction, there's comfort. And yet, the providence just feels very hard, doesn't it? It just feels hard. I was talking to one of the family members of one of our families deeply touched this week, and we were talking about this, and he said, Jason, he said, you know, we just don't know everything. I said, yeah, that's, that's right. We, we don't know everything. We don't see everything. We don't understand everything. And he said to me, he said, I've been reflecting upon Job and Ecclesiastes, and that is the great message that I keep getting from these two books, is that we just don't know everything. If you and I were to stumble across the building site, and there was laid out on that building site all of the materials that were going to be used. And let's say even it was a large building site. The larger the building site, the more materials there are that are scattered everywhere, and you have the plywood here, and you have the two-by-fours here, and you have the steel, and you have the concrete, and you have uh, the different iron rods of iron here and you have the different tools that are going to be used and they're just all laid out and it just looks like a complete and utter mess but the architect knows he knows how all of that goes together and he knows that as each of those things is put together, that this goes here and that goes there in his timing and according to his direction. And as it does, what appeared to be just a complete disaster and mess, all of a sudden ends up being a building that rises up and can dominate the horizon with beauty. We don't know everything. but we know the architect. We know the one that does. And he is worth relying upon. What we know is what Paul confesses here. He says, our God is God. And the same God who is our God is the Father of mercies. Our God, the God is our God. And the God who is our God is the Father of mercies. Another way of saying that is, is God is sovereign and God is good. 
And those two things we have to say to ourselves over and over again and remind ourselves over and over again. They're the two pillars. I often think they're the two pillars that just kind of keep our faith erect above. He is sovereign and He is good. And when that faith is faltering and when our heads are beginning to kind of sink low, we just remind ourselves those two pillars. He's sovereign. And he's good. And we're his children. So we rely upon him for comfort. And what I love, what Paul is saying is here, is that he will provide it. He provides the comfort. It's not as if it's something that you and I just long after and this kind of absent hoping after. No, it's ours. He provides the comfort. And we do all this together. Second, and more briefly, we lean into one another's care. You notice that God being the God of all comfort does not somehow relegate people to the sidelines. It rather engages us in ministry to one another because God uses secondary means to dispense His comfort. And you and I are secondary means by which He dispenses His comfort to one another. You notice what Paul says in verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. We lean into one another's care. Notice that not only is not God limited in the situations He gives mercy, but neither are you, dear Christian, limited. He says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Whatever trial others are in, whatever circumstances, whatever struggle they are in, whatever sorrow they're experiencing, we are able to comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're able. But it's more than we're just able. You know, a rich man... There's a lot of riches, may be able to dispense those riches and help other people, but they may not be willing to do so. But you see, what Paul is saying here of you and I is that we are not only made able to be dispensers of comfort, we are also made willing dispensers of comfort. Why? Because we have received mercy ourselves. That's his point. We, we know this ourselves. I've received it, Paul says, so I dispense it. You've received it, so you dispense it. We've been through afflictions, as Paul speaks about here. We know this great mercy that comes from our Father of all mercies, and so we give it. So many of you, so many of you have exhibited this over the past week. I love that two of you who are doing logistics for the funeral tomorrow, uh, said the same thing. You said uh, that you had no need to go look for volunteers this week because you got so many emails and so many texts of people 
saying they wanted to serve and how could they help and what could they do. And why? Because you've received mercy and you want to give mercy. We need to keep doing this. We, leave, we live through affliction together as a family. That's why I wanted to be here uh, this week. More than anything else, this is why my family wanted to be here. Family gathers, and as we gather, we gather together and we minister to one another and we bless one another and we pray for one another and we mourn with one another and we cry with one another and we serve one another. That's what family does. Because we know, as Paul testifies here, that even our spiritual comforts are not given to us for our use alone. Like every gift that we have received from God, it is given that we might be good stewards of it and help others by it. There's a famous scene in church history where John Knox, the 16th century reformer, Scottish reformer, is sick and on his deathbed, and this is towards the very end of his life, and he is racked with sickness, and he wakes up from the night, and there are people around his bed, and he is trying to get, get up out of bed. And they're asking him, Mr. Knox, why are you trying to get out of bed when you are so sick? And he explains to them that during the night he had had dreams, and as he had had dreams during the night, he had had dreams of the resurrection of Christ. And he said this, he said that he was rising to get into the pulpit so that he could, quote, impart to others the comforts he felt in his own soul. He'd receive mercy. And he just longed to extend that mercy to others. We lean into one another's care. There are two things that happen, I think, in afflictions, at least by my observation, watching the people of God, watching my own life. I think we do one of two things. Either we run towards God and towards His people, or we tend to run away from God and away from His people in the midst of affliction. There's one that's right and is one of the ways that the Lord dispenses mercy to you. There's the other that just starves your soul. If you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. Finally, we rest in prayer. There's so much more I think we could see in this passage. I want you, though, to see this call, especially at the end, this call for them to pray. We, we often tack on prayer as if it's the nice Christian thing to do on the end. We will say to people, well, I'm, I'm praying for you, and that's the way to get out of the conversation, but not for Paul. This isn't his get out of the conversation with him. This is what he sees as necessary ministry. This is one of the ways that they can dispense mercy to him. And this is how he is dispensing mercy to them. And so he asks them to pray. This is part of leaning into the comfort of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is part of relying upon God's comfort is that we pray and that we ask for prayer. He asks them in verse 11, you 
also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He wants them praying to the Father of all mercies through the Son, the Son that has died for them and the Son that He speaks about having been resurrected for Him, that He says is the hope of His glory, this God that has triumphed over death. He's saying, pray to Him for me. That's how you can dispense mercy to me. Pray to Him for me. I've loved uh, this last week watching how the Lord has gifted us all differently. There are some of you that experience this in family life together, and you are doers. And so you are convinced that the suffering families that are on the front lines, they need about 14 pies, and you're going to bake them all. Uh, There are others that you say, I I just want to go and sit with them and weep. There are others of you that have a word of encouragement and you just want to go and you want to offer a word of encouragement. We're all gifted differently. We all have different abilities. The Lord has made us all different, but He has made us all the same in this regard. He has gifted us all to pray. He has given us knees to bow. He has given us tongues to speak. He has given us dependence and humility in Him to go before Him in prayer for one another. We can all pray. Even you kids in this room, every single one of you can be praying. We pray for one another. It's the greatest service, I think, on the face of this earth that we can offer for one another is to be praying for one another. It's the greatest way that you can offer mercy to one another is to pray for one another. And it's one of the greatest means by which the Lord chooses to bless you and I and to continue to uphold us and safeguard us and shape us and dispense His own mercy upon us is through the prayers of others. Isn't that a wonderful mercy that we're in the body of Christ. We never suffer affliction alone. I was talking about this with some after the first service and that are on the front lines of this, their families most affected, and they were saying what a wonderful gift it is just to be in the body of Christ. I, I don't know. I don't know how they do it out there. I wouldn't survive. I don't survive a week like this out there. But in the body of Christ, you're never alone. It's never just your grief. It's never just your affliction. It's never just your sorrow. It's ours. Paul tells them they can be ministers of mercy to him by praying for him. You know, this world is a world we live in with others, particularly with those whom we will share eternity with. And so we weep together and we laugh together and we worship together and we feast together and we pray together and we wade through this affliction together. 
We, we do all of this together. And, and when we're in the midst of it, I often find myself just having to reorient my own mind and, and to remind myself of, of how it is that I am to think about these things and do these things and exist in a week like this. How do you think about it? How do you do it? Well, you always do it together. You know, this morning, we'll take the Lord's table together, and it will be a true sign, and it's a true seal that you and I, we are bound together as a family. Because we are united to our one head, and we are united as a body with Him, that we are one church. It's interesting that it's at a meal, because you see throughout the Scriptures that God's people are often gathering together in meals. They're doing so at the Passover. They're doing so at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see the Lord Jesus in His resurrected body doing this. He's gathering with the disciples on the beach. He's breaking bread with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. You see this when it speaks about eternity and the heavens to come. It it speaks about it being the, the Lamb's feast, this bridal feast where we shall go in and we shall feast with Him. All of this eating together. One theologian commented famously, he said that Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. And that's true. He just turned the page and he turned again, and there he is eating again. And there he is drinking again. Why? Because there's something about gathering together. being with each other and feasting together. And all of that is meant to remind you and I of what is to come. These are all just little appetizers to remind us of what is to come. It's not as if we get to heaven and somehow we get there and we live in some kind of isolated, disembodied state of ecstasy, we will be basking in the glory of our Lord in the presence of one another. And, and we need that perspective. I was uh, talking with someone about a month ago. We were talking about this. This individual was going through great affliction. And they were commenting upon... the. They've been wrestling in the midst of this affliction because they know that they're to set their mind upon heavenly things. And they say, but as soon as they set their mind upon heavenly things and they're thinking about all the joys of heaven, that now all the things in this life seem very menial, menial and very small and very trite, and they find themselves not enjoying anything here. And they said, but then when they're reminded that, you know what, the Lord has given us family and He's given us food and He's given us one another as delights in this life, that when they begin to focus on that, then they forget about heaven. And they're just focused on the things of earth. This person was asking me, how, how do I think? How do I do this and live like this in the midst of deep affliction?" And I'm saying what often goes through my mind is the Apostle Paul when, where he will say in Galatians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He saw all of life, all of life lived here, he saw through one lens, the lens of Christ. 
And when he looked at death, he saw death through the lens of Christ. So that no matter what he was doing in this life, whether he was feasting or whether he was in trial, whether he had plenty or he had want, as he said, he sees it all through the lens of Christ. So that what happens is that when you and I are gathered together like this, and as we'll feast in a little bit together, and as we enjoy this comfort of one another, and as we enjoy each other's song at the end and singing, and the love that shines forth in that, all of that is to remind us through the lens of Christ of what is yet to come. And likewise, when we are suffering affliction and we see things as they are not to be, it is to remind us of what is yet to come. One perfected, the other done away with. C.S. Lewis, in the last battle, said it this way. He was talking about the children and the animals when they move from the old Narnia to the new Narnia. And as they do, he wrote this. He said, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And then the unicorn says this. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And if it's not blasphemous to critique Lewis's writing, I would add this. The reason why we didn't love the old Narnia is that sometimes it didn't look like this. It's both. The unicorn at the end, after he has told them of the glories of this new Narnia, he says to all of his traveling companions, he says, come further up, come further in. Come further up, come further in. That's what we do. We rely upon God's comfort. We lean into one another's care and we rest in prayer as we look for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And all of that is just coming further up and coming further in into the mercies of God. Just coming further up and further in. His mercy has the last say, not death, not affliction. His mercy is always, always, always more for His people. He is the Father of all mercies. It's your mercy today. It's our mercy together today. Let's pray together. Our Father of all mercies, our God of all comfort, we thank you 
that you are a God who wraps his everlasting arms around his children, that you have not abandoned us, that you have not left us nor forsaken us, that even that last enemy of death has been swallowed up, its sting has been taken away, and that we know that even now our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus reigns above. We're thankful that you have given us one another, that we do not walk through the sorrows and the afflictions of this life alone, but that you dispense your comfort and your mercy to us through one another, and we pray that you would do so. May you be a strong tower and a refuge for us. May we bind one another's wounds. May we be ministers of encouragement and mercy, and may you be exalted our God of gods and Lord of lords, we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.